This is the Other Bundesliga podcast and you're listening to our lockdown look back at Austria's France 98 World Cup campaign. to the other Bundesliga and welcome to 1998. Myself, Tom Midler, Lee Wingate and Simon Clark are here to take you back in time to the last World Cup of the previous millennium. France's multicultural megastars were about to lift the famous trophy for the first time ever and on home soil too. And Das National team, led by manager Herbert Prohaska, were gearing up to take on what turned out to be their final ever World Cup to date. What were they listening to back in Austria back then? No Tango Dinero by Los Umbrellas was the hit of summer 1998, spending 10 consecutive weeks at the top of the Austrian charts, including spending the top spot for the whole entire duration of the tournament. Let's have a listen to that right now. It sounds great and it sounds very camp. Here it is. No Tingo Dinero from Los Umbrellas. Any memories of that from you guys? I have to confess, it means nothing to me. Literally zero memories at all, but looking on its Wikipedia page, it was number one almost everywhere across Europe in summer 1998, so... <laughs> yeah, it's one of those songs that didn't reach the British soil, I guess. Never mind, eh? The road to France 98 did not start with Los Umbrellas, but it started a few years back at the back end of 1996, when the Austrian team began their qualifying campaign for France 98. And that team included some classic names for the qualifiers and for the finals themselves. Before we look at the qualifiers, I'm going to actually read out the list of the squad who represented Austria in an Austria shirt at that time. And I want you guys to say what those players mean to you, if anything. In goal, Austria had Michael Konsel, the Roma goalkeeper. They had Franz Wolfart. He'll come up later. He played his part. And there's Wolfgang Knaller as well. In defence, Wolfgang Feiersinger of uh, Dortmund fame. Martin Hieden, uh, Walter Kogler, Anton Pfeffer, Peter Schüttel. In midfield, Martin Amerhauser, Harald Czerny, Andreas Herath, Andreas Herzog, Dietmar Kubauer, Roman Melich, Heimo Pfeifenberger, Hannes Reinmeier, Markus Schopp, Peter Stöger und Arnold Wickel. And up front, Mario Haas, Tony Polster and Ivica Vastic. Not too much on the attacking side there for Austria, just those three well-known names. And of course, Herbert Prohaska. We can't forget Herbert Prohaska smoking his his cigarettes and his cigars on the touchline. What an image that was. Which of those players stands out to you? You know, before we get into the detail of the games and the qualifiers and the World Cup proper, which of those players uh, evokes memories for you guys? For me, it has to be Tony Polster. 
because uh, France 98 is a sweet spot of uh, my football fandom. I was seven years old. It was the first major tournament I remember seeing. For me, Tony Polster and his hair was just the, the abiding memory of Austria during that tournament. So um, for me, it has to be Tony Polster. He had like a silver perm, didn't he? It's brilliant. It was like a, a dark, dark, you know, like a black slash silver perm. And I think for me as well as you, that was that was an abiding memory of, of the, that Austria team of the late 90s. What about you, Lee? Well, uh, I'd have to say probably Wolfgang Feierzinger because he was a, a rock at the back for Austria, but only the year before he'd won the Champions League with Borussia Dortmund. He didn't play in the final, but he was a pivotal part on the road to that on the on the road to that final as a stand-in for Matthias Sammer. So he's a big name as well. And then of course some of the the guys that you saw in the the Panini albums at the time. Uh, so you've got Ivi Kovacic as well, big name Andreas Herzog. So there were some some sizable names there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sorry, I think you've got a great stat as well, haven't you, about uh, Mario Haas, who was the number seven for Austria at the time, one of their few forwards. Yeah, he, he has an interesting career. He played for Sturm Graz on three separate occasions. And on each of those occasions, he made over 100 appearances. He had two, two brief gaps, one in France and one, one in Japan. But yeah, imagine playing for the same club on three different occasions over 100 times each. That must be, that must be a record of some sort. One for the quiz questions, I guess. Yeah. That World Cup squad for Austria, for me, back at France 98, will always be uh, inextricably linked to the football games because I got into football games in 98 with ISS 98 on the N64. And, you know, you're looking through those sides and, and they've got the fake names as well. So it's brilliant. Looking through, uh, I can't remember what Polster was now, but it was like Forger or something. <laughs> Trying to, like, decipher what those fake names were was absolutely great. But there are some, some really, really big names in there, especially, as, as you said, players that stood out. Herzog, uh, um, Roman Neelich, I always remember, used to wear these XXL sort of shirts it looked like at the time. I guess that was the fashion back then, to have like really baggy football shirts. And uh, l- lest we forget that Austria used to play in black and white as their home shirt as well. What I'm wearing now, this thing, is, is the away shirt. But back then in 98, they had a white shirt, brilliant detailing on the arms for the qualifiers back in 96. That was really, really nice. And, uh, and for, for the World Cup 98 itself as well, a very, a very classy black and white number. But let's move into those qualifying games because Austria's journey, the road to World Cup 98, as it were, to quote the PlayStation 1 game, uh, FIFA Road to World Cup 98. <laughs> <laughs> Not only were they content to sell you FIFA 97, FIFA 98, FIFA World Cup, they would also sell you FIFA Road to the World Cup. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that road to the World Cup started at the Ernst Tafel Stadion in Vienna with a game against Scotland back in August 1996. Uh, the group contained Scotland, it contained Sweden, who'd done well at the previous World Cup, Estonia, Belarus, Latvia, and of course, last but not least, Austria. I mean, how, how what was the potential? How were Austria looking going into that group, do you reckon? I mean, going back into... It, it mind back to 96. Going into that group, they were definitely the deferred favourites to go through. You have Sweden, who are World Cup semi-finalists, and you have a Scotland team that's just packed full of very evocative uh, Premier League players from, from the 90s. So it was a very, very strong uh, Scotland team. And uh, even the group, you have banana skins like Latvia. A lot of that Latvia team went on to play eight years later in the Euros, Euro 2004. And uh, yeah, it was a relatively difficult group. And I don't think Austria were one of the favourites to go through. It would have been Scotland and Sweden, you'd imagine, before qualifying. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And at the same time, though, you do have an absence of big names. You have to notice that there's no France, there's no Spain. I mean, of course, France couldn't qualify. It was, it was France 98, they were there automatically. <laughs> but if you're talking about like the cream of the, of the crop in terms of European talent, there's no Germany, there's no like A-list names yeah. in there. So it was, it was certainly an achievable group. And they started out with a nil-nil draw at home to Scotland in August 96. Big dunk. I know, Simon, you're as an Everton uh, lover, Duncan Ferguson is somebody yeah. Uh, yeah, that means a lot to you. He missed a big header at, at the end of that game. That doesn't sound like a big dunk. Start. <laughs> <laughs> We're missing a big header. Classic big dunk. Yeah. Duncan Ferguson. Yeah, it's sort of a low-key start to the campaign. It was a big game against Scotland. Uh, a very low attendance at the Ernst Harper Stadion. Nil-nil. And that was backed up by a massive away win in Sweden. Michael Consult with a penalty save in that game as well. So it was a good start in the end, uh, despite low attendances. And then it went to Scotland, a big game at Celtic Park, a massive game, in fact, at Celtic Park against what turned out to be the, uh, the qualification rival Scotland. And Kevin Gallagher, one of those classic Premier League names yeah. that, that you mentioned, it was Kevin Gallagher, um, Gary McAllister, who's probably the biggest name of Scotland back in those days. They were, they were there and... Um, they, they won. Scotland won 2-0 thanks to a brace from Kevin Gallagher inside a packed Celtic Park. That must have been absolutely brilliant. But that was the only slip-up and that was to be the only loss for Austria in the campaign. They beat Latvia 3-1 with uh, the, one, the one Latvian player that everybody knows. Who would that be from his, from his time? Marianne Pajas, of course. <laughs> yes. Marianne Pajas. Uh, what role did Marianne Pajas play in Latvia 1, Austria 3? I don't actually know, Thomas. Tell me. <laughs> he got sent off. Marian Pajas was sent off in, uh, in a banana skin <laughs> fixture. Um, Tony Polster, with his perm that we've talked about, the legend yeah. of Tony Polster, he got a hat-trick in a 3-0 win against Estonia in August 97, with the dates progressing. And then it came down to the crunch game of qualifying, the game that everybody knew was likely to be the most important one. Austria against Sweden. By this point, the Stadion in Vienna was packed to the rafters. People knew that World Cup qualification was on the line for this game. And you had an absolute brawl of an encounter. Terrible tackles flying in all around in this game. Um, of course, it was going to be a low-scoring affair. Red cards all over. Pfeffer was sent off for Austria. Sweden had their own man sent off. And with the game heading into the late stages with both sides featuring only 10 men, 15 minutes to go, I'm going to share with you the audio right now of what happened at that decisive point in the game. Versuch selbst und Tor! Jawohl! Andreas Herzog mit einem Superschuss, das 1 zu 0 für I've got to say, that is an underrated goal as well. Herzog with the 1-0 against Sweden. in a, it's a, in a, it's a superb goal. goal. It's a genuinely it really superb goal. Yeah. yeah. Edge of the Dancing box. Round. Dancing around the defenders. Strikes it from the edge of the box. And it's just so sweetly struck. Top corner. Just If you're going to win a football match, you might as well score a goal like that. And also great, great commentary as well from the ORF commentator. Yeah, that was it was very much fitting there that uh, that Herzog's goal secured a one 0 win, a, a really really big win against Sweden in in a vital game. But that wasn't the end of the drama for that game because 
there was another red card to come, and that was Michael Consul, the uh, the goalkeeper, one of the stars of that squad. You know, he was playing in goal for Roma at the time. Yeah, he was um, the Serie A foreign player of the year in 1998. So imagine Serie A in the late 90s, peak Serie A, and the foreign player of the year was the Austria goalkeeper, who was 35 as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Serie A was a massive deal back then as well, and, and you had an Austrian getting that award. So that, that goes to show just what an important part Michael Consul was of the Austria squad. And he was another player to get a red card in that bruising encounter. So it ended 9v10. Austria took the three points with them that proved vital. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll go on to a quick side note, actually, about Scotland at this point, because Scotland <laughs> were also in that three-way hunt. It was Austria, Sweden and Scotland in the three-way hunt for the, uh, for the two automatic spots, as it turned out, in that group for France 98. And Scotland also played a really famous game during this uh, campaign where they hosted, oh, they went away to Estonia, sorry. And Estonia were unhappy about a late change of the fixture kickoff time. So Estonia didn't feel the side, they didn't turn up. Scotland actually got the game underway in Estonia against no opposition until the, um, the whistle was blown. Paul Lambert, another Champions League winner with Dortmund, was, uh, was the guy to kick off. They, they uh, blew the game, they blew the final whistle for the game after about 10 seconds or something, that was it. Scotland thought they'd won 3-0, as the UEFA president would be, but the UEFA president, not to be confused with precedent, was from Sweden, and he <laughs> didn't want Scotland to pick up an easy three points. So uh, the UEFA ruling was then actually that Scotland and Estonia had to replay the game in the Stade Louis II in Monaco the next year, in 97. Estonia held on for a nil-nil draw, thanks to another player from... Uh, from Estonia, a player from Estonia, sorry, who, who made a name for himself, another player who made a name for himself in England, and that was Mark Poom, the goalkeeper. He yeah. had a, a stunning display in a nil-nil draw, and that nearly cost Scotland their place at, uh, at France 98. But for Austria, what happened was <laughs> Michael Consul was sent off. They went into their final two games, a double header against Belarus. Now that sounds attractive to us today, but uh, with Consul off, that meant that Franz Wolfart had to come in and play a really nervy encounter away in Belarus, which Austria couldn't afford to slip up in. And Wolfart produced a, a string of great saves in that game, which allowed uh, Pfeifenberger's second-half header to give Austria three points in a real, uh, yeah, a real edge of the seat, you know, squeaky bum time kind of game. And then they brought it home to the final match day. A game at the Ernst Happel, completely full, a summer's day as it looked like, beautiful, beautiful weather. Yeah. You just need to win against Belarus to secure World Cup qualification for 98. And what happened? And they came out of the blocks. They scored four goals in the first half. Tony Polster with two uh, and Peter Stoger with two. 4-0 at halftime. Second half was a complete celebration and Austria were on their way to their first World Cup in eight years. Yeah, and you have to say as well that Austria aren't really known as being a high-scoring team generally. Generally, they tend to rely on defensive solidity. So that 4-0 or the, the four goals there were a bit of an anomaly. But actually, defensively, they were so good during this campaign. They only conceded two goals. If you exclude the matches against Scotland, they only conceded two goals put together against all the other teams. So it really was uh, their defensive solidity, really, that, that got them to, to France 98. Yeah, yeah and I have to say, that could have been a very nervous game, couldn't it? But 4-0 but up at half-time, you've got the job done. Polster 2, Stöger 2, brilliant yeah. way to qualify. Yeah, and Tony Polster ended up being the fifth top scorer 
in uh, Euro World Cup qualifying. So he put his name amongst the, the, the leading strikers on the continent prior to the tournament. While we're on the topic of stats, a little bit of trivia. So there were only two teams that amassed more points in uh, Euro, well, in, in qualifying from, from the UEFA section than Austria. So can you name which two countries got more points? In France, 98 qualifying. Wow. Yeah, it, from Europe, yeah. I, I vaguely remember that Spain were very good in qualifying back then and, and weak in tournaments. So I might go for Spain as one of them. Spain is one. I'm going to say yeah. y- y- Yugoslavia. It's not Yugoslavia, no. Uh, um, Scotland's 23 points were enough that it meant that the second place team in the group, Scotland, they didn't have to go through a playoff. So it was one of the few groups where Austria won with 25 points. Scotland ended up second with 23 and went directly to the World Cup, skipping a playoff. Thank the Lord. And uh, Sweden finished third with 21 and did not go to the World Cup. Um, who, who secured more than 25 points, Lee? Who was the other team? It was Romania, actually. Ah, that, 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 that was a, a very good Romania team. So A left field, aren't they? It was, yeah. yeah. Very good. So, with their 23 points, or it was 25 points, Austria were off to the World Cup in France 98 and uh, if you were lucky enough to listen or watch the France 98 stuff that went on on your television screens what you might have heard was a song by the name of Carnival de Paris this is what it sounded like when you when you listened to a game from World Cup 98 Take you straight back. That does it much more for me than no tengo dinero. That takes <laughs> yeah. me straight back to World Cup '98. Uh, Absolutely brilliant. Well, what a song! What a song! What a song! Yeah. Excellent music. So Austria obviously made their way. They qualified through the road to World Cup 1998. The group draw. They were in Group B, I believe, with Cameroon, Chile, and Italy. What do you make of that for a, for a draw in terms of that 1998 Austria side? What are they thinking about that? Well, I mean, uh, it's a very tough draw because you had the losing finalists from uh, World Cup 1994, uh, who, of course, Italy. You had Chile, who uh, came in the tournament with two of the best strikers in the world, with Marcelo Salas and even Zamorano. And you had a Cameroon team who was about to reach its peak, winning the 2000 Africa Cup of Nations. So I think it was quite a tough group, actually. Yeah, very much so. There's uh, no easy games at the World Cup and... uh... I think Austria's initial job was just to qualify. They started off with an opening game against Cameroon in Toulouse. And that was another bruiser, much like that Sweden game in qualifying. That was another bruising encounter, wasn't it, Lee? Yeah, there were some really, really uh, dirty tackles, to say the least, going on here. Cameroon taking a really, really rough approach. They were, I think there was one memorable moment where uh, one of the Austria players had his, but basically had his abdomen stamped on. There were some other very high tackles. It was a bit of a tasty encounter in the opening stages. But it was, wasn't actually until 12 minutes from the end that the deadlock was broken. And this, if you don't remember this goal, this is really worth YouTubing. Najanka's opening goal for Cameroon is probably one of the top goals at that tournament. He picks the ball up on the halfway line. 
he's allowed to run for quite some way, but then ghosts past two defenders who he swiftly leaves on their asses before drilling right into the top corner. And at that point, it was going to be a big, big ask for Austria. Yeah, I can't argue with that at all. That, that's a classic World Cup 98 goal. That's exactly what you want in, in 90s football. Taking on the defenders, running at them, beating them, leaving them on the ground. The finish wasn't perfect, but it, it did enough. And it was just one of those goals that would get the fans off their seat. Although it was obviously a big setback from an Austrian point of view. But how did they react to that in the rest of the game? Well, they reacted to this particular goal pretty much the same way they reacted in every game. And that was to score a stoppage time goal. Uh, they got a late corner. I think Cameroon didn't necessarily need to, to give away that corner, but they headed it behind. The corner comes in. It's an outswerving corner. An Austria player gets his head to the ball. And suddenly, Tony Polster is in acres of space in the box. And despite two Cameroon players on the line, he lashes it right into the top corner to salvage Austria's uh, a point from, from the opening game. I'll share with you what the commentary sounded like of that Tony Polster equaliser, because it's brilliant. And I do remember at the time, I, I vaguely remember there was actually a big argument between the Cameroon defenders after that corner was given away. Like Some of them were really shouting at each other. And uh, that's because this happened. Austria flirting with defeat now. And here's Polster! He's equalised in stoppage time! Austria's most experienced player has done it to avoid defeat for Austria. Fitting that it would be Tony Polster to rescue the draw. How happy are Austria coming away with that? You know, Italy had played against Chile earlier on and the group was wide open at that stage, wasn't it? Yeah, I think you would, as an Austrian, you would have definitely taken the result given that they were behind before. But I think ultimately they may have been a little disappointed knowing that this was probably their best chance to get three points and obviously take a big step towards ultimately going through the group. So perhaps they would have felt in two minds about the final result in this one. And also they had an excellent uh, shot from Heimo Pfeffenberger, who um, uh, which was just, uh, a brilliant shot that, from distance. And they had a couple more opportunities as well. So they would be slightly disappointed maybe not to get the three points. But as I was talking about, this was a very strong Cameroon team with a lot of recognisable names, not only to English football fans, but to Austrian football fans. Um, you had Rigobert Song, who's at Liverpool and West Ham. You had uh, Joseph Desiree Job, who was at Middlesbrough. Patrick Mbomber, PSG and Sunderland. And then two players who played in the Bundesliga. You had... Didier Angerbud, who moved to Sturm Graz post-World Cup. They're obviously scouting for players post-World Cup. And Sassamuel Epua was actually at Rapid Vienna before the tournament started. So there was quite a few recognisable names in the Cameroon team. Yeah, Songo O as well, the goalkeeper yeah. I always remember. Songo apostrophe O, the goalkeeper that made that, <laughs> that key save from Pfeifenberger. But what does that say? Imagine that, like, looking back sort of 22 years about the stature of Austrian football, that a team like Sturm Graz was able to look at players from Cameroon, look at players maybe from emerging nations at the World Cup and say, yeah, we want to sign those players. Can you imagine that happening now? Because oh, it, it seems like I mean, a million miles away to me. And this was a Sturm Graz that had just won the, the league title and were Champions League uh, regulars for the next three seasons. And uh, he, he's not the only uh, player from this group who they purchased. They also purchased Francisco Rojas of Chile, who went on to play over 100 times for Sturm Graz. So obviously the Sturm Graz scouts are watching these games intently. Yeah, it seems like it. So moving on from Cameroon 1, Austria 1 in Toulouse, 
Austria bagged a point at the last minute and moved on to Saint-Étienne, where they were to play against Chile, who'd got that opening day draw against Italy. So the group was very finely poised at this stage. Now, that's a big encounter. Chile were one of the sides to really excite. They were sort of going in as dark horses. I remember as well from the kit perspective, something that means a lot to me, that Chile kit is the stuff of legend, the oh, red kit with this beautiful. giant Reebok logo all the way across the shoulder and the top of the shirt. They sort of integrated the Reebok logo into the design of the, of the, of the kit proper. And I loved it. And, and you, two players that you mentioned earlier as well, Salas and Zamorano. I can't even remember now whether they made a name for themselves at the World Cup or whether they were all already massive when they were going into the World Cup. I mean, They were already what massive. Um, Salas was at uh, Juventus and Lazio and uh, Zamorano was at Real Madrid and then Inter Milan where he had the famous shirt uh, with the one plus eight <laughs> character. Yeah. <laughs> I remember them playing in Italy, but for me, like that was that was the World Cup. You know, you, you said earlier that you know, France 98 was kind of the that peak World Cup time. For people, I think, of our age, World Cup 98 was when we started to discover these exotic players from other countries and see football outside of our own land. And, and World Cup 98 was the first one where we were old enough to really sort of grasp the spectacle of World Cup 98. And Chile are a big part of that for me. So that is a, that's a great opponent from France 98, that this sort of classic Austria team would draw against what is a classic Chile team as well. And uh, Similarly to the first game against Cameroon, there were no early goals. It was all a bit, uh, a bit of a tight affair. Does anyone have any more details on what happened in that game? In, in certainly in, in the first hour or so, at least. It just wasn't a great game, really. Um, <clears throat> there wasn't really many opportunities. Uh, Consul saved from uh, Villa Royal. Um, that's really about it, really. Um, there was also a Spanish La Liga side. <laughs> it is. Also, it's also a, a Chilean fullback. <laughs> But yeah. Who else um, were the big names outside of Salas and Zamorano as well? Who else was in there? I mean, the only player who played really at any level in Europe was Clarence Acuna, who played in the Champions League and the Premier League for, for Newcastle United. I looked for the Chile team and you imagine there would be more big names, but there really isn't. It's just, just those three players. And of course, Francisco Rojas, who went on to play for Sturm Graz. So, yeah, it's, I think it's not... Salas, Zamorano, Rojas, Acuna, that's enough. Yeah, Allied enough. with that kid. <laughs> Shall I share with you the opening goal from that game? This is what the opening goal in Chile versus Austria sounded like. Zamorano, Salas is there. Salas has turned the ball over the line. Austria claim it's not a goal, but the referee from Egypt says it is. A little bit of controversy about the goal. You could hear that in the commentary there. The uh, Austrian players claimed that it was not a goal. The referee said it was. What's your take on that goal? It was not a goal. Um, looking back at the replays, it doesn't. The ball doesn't fully cross the line. I mean, uh, look, looking back at it now with 2020 vision, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, nice. you, you could say that uh, Austria were, were done over there. They needed goal line technology for sure. But it's rather inconclusive. Yeah, so There's a lot of bodies on the line, and you know, Consul goes back a little bit as well. Salas comes in with his foot, and yeah, I don't know. It's a bit of a mess, but the linesman gave it, and I don't agree. That's right, Consul, the keeper, has control of it, doesn't he? And sort of moves backwards. So it's a, a tough one anyway. But yet again, Austria found themselves a goal down in the second half of a massive World Cup game. And yet again, they fought hard. Yeah, I think really towards the end of this game, quite surprisingly, Chile really started to sit back and invite Austria onto them. And I think perhaps if they tried to kill the game, then, then they may have, may have got three points to show for it. But as it was... 
it was uh, Ivica Vastic that was allowed to become the Austrian hero that day. A nice little through ball into the box towards him. And then, well, with a toe poke, really, he sort of puts it right in that space between the crossbar and the post. It was a cracking finish. And yet again, Austria rescuing a 1-1 draw. I think I've got audio of this goal to share with you as well. Well, Austria have scored one late goal already in this competition. It's Vastic. Oh, they got another! Vastic with another late, late strike to rescue Austria. I love that. Great commentary as well. Sort of throwing yeah. back to the, the commentary sounds, the, the voices that we grew up with on TV in the 90s. But Vastic as well. What, what a player. Played for Lask until he was about 38, I think, to beat Vastic. And uh, Chile hadn't learned the lessons from the Cameroon versus Austria game. And Austria struck back once again in injury time, became a theme of their France 98 campaign. But they grabbed another point. With only 15 so seconds think- to go as well. 15 seconds left on the clock. And to score a goal like that under those circumstances. Well, what I love about the Polster goal and the Vastic goal is they, they're both just... The thunder strikes, aren't they? they? They they lever it as hard as they can. It's just great. You, you don't see goals like that anymore, you know. Just, just the kind of goals it. that go in in injury time, aren't they? Just like, yeah, exactly. you know, the ball needs to be in the area, and you just just get something on target and see what happens. Was it indicative of the fact that Austria sat back too much in the early phases of the games, or was it a credit to them that they kept on going and uh, and made it work? You know, and fought till the final whistle. I think, as I said earlier, they are a country that's known for their defensive style of play. And so I think they probably did take quite a a conservative approach, really. And I think perhaps, you know, I would have liked to have seen them with some of the attacking quality in that team. You know, the Hauzogs, the Vastiches, the the Polsters, to really go for it earlier on. Because they might have had more to show for it. They might have have, uh, made it through the group. Yeah, a story of other Austrian tournament campaigns as well. Um, do you know how they sort of set up in some of those games? Like, how did they, they, they approach these games? Did they play a particularly defensive formation? Because I know the defence were key to that Austria side, of course. Well, they actually regularly, I think in all three of their games, they played with the, the back three of Feiersinger, uh, Pfeffer and uh, what's the last one? Feiersinger, Pfeffer Peter and Schottel. somebody. That's it, Peter Shuttle. Um, usually the same back three, but then also with two holding midfielders as well in a midfield four. So really, there's just a bank of five players defending the middle of the pitch, which, uh, you know, not not really sure you need to be that defensive unless you're our good friend Simon when it comes to playing pro evolution soccer. Nobody puts that many, <laughs> nobody puts that many men in defence. Six defenders at the back, Lee. It's the only way I can beat you sometimes. But I mean, when you explain it like that with sort of, as you say, sort of five players just just holding down that defence or the midfield as well. That sort of explains why you get these these kind of claggy games. And, and it's sort of, the games are bound to be tight when you look at it that way. Austria were never going to be a free-flowing or free-scoring side. And as it turned out, the group came down to to the finest of margins, didn't it? You know, any any games or any goals, like the goal, that, you know, the shot that was saved by Songo in the Cameroon game, the goal that goes over the line for Chile in the second game, all of that came back to, uh, to, to haunt Austria in the end. And they moved on to a game against Italy. And uh, when you look through that Italy game, I mean, it's a massive game now. We would absolutely relish that. Austria versus Italy. Oh my God. The final game of the World Cup group stages in the uh, San Denis Stadium. You can't really ask for much more than that in terms of a, a, a sort of a, 
a top level tie. But at the same time, what a difficult game. Just look at that Italy squad. I started yeah. noting down the big players from that Italy side. And I gave up after about four names because I thought, oh, screw it, everybody. Every, like, absolutely all of these players are massive. Like, what about that Italy side? <laughs> It's astonishing. Gianluca Pagliuca in goal, Paolo Maldini, Cannavaro, Costa Curta, Alessandro Nesta, who actually went off in the fourth minute, uh, Alessandro Del Piero, Dino Baggio, Luigi Di Biagio, Christian Vieri, and then to bring on from the Suds bench, Roberto Baggio and Filippo Inzaghi. It's just, wow, what, what, a, what a collection of footballers, you know? This was peak Italy. Serie A was at its absolute height. And for Austria to be playing Italy in the tournament, I mean, you'd imagine they'd be quite intimidating. <laughs> yeah, such a big Italy squad. As you mentioned, you know, of course, they were just uh, a few feet away from potentially winning the World Cup as well, just four years prior. Yeah. They still had, I mean, they had so many up-and-coming great players. They had that classic kit for me. I'm going to take it back to the oh kits again God. with the sort of uh, slightly, slightly angled or, or tilted Italy Football Association badge with a little round bit at the bottom. Italy kits for me, they lost, they lost something when that 90s Italy badge was changed. But what a team. It's, it's just everything about it is just so cool. I mean, I've told you guys before about my love of Serie A in the 90s, but if people don't know, in England, uh, the English Premier League wasn't shown on free TV, but the, uh, the Italian Serie A was. So every Sunday you'd have, uh, you have British people watching Italian football. So all these names were just as familiar to me as Premier League players were. So I had a real affinity to that Italian team. And I think a lot of people in the UK would also have that feeling, particularly looking back at those players now. I mean, just if, if just you think of these great moments and great players and yeah, it's good. I definitely share that with you with Gazetta Football Italia. Yeah. You know, I knew, I knew who Juventus were before I knew who Newcastle United were in terms of teams with black and white stripes, even growing up in England. So I think in many ways, Italy was an even bigger draw then than it is, than it is now to play a World Cup game against Italy. But um, as for the game itself, you know, how, how much were Austria outclassed, certainly in the first phase of the game? Are you taking this, Lee, or...? <laughs> um, I can do, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, was, it, was, it was a bit of a uh, Chris Kamara moment there. I can do, Jeff. Um, yeah, I mean, it was relatively balanced in the first half. I think Austria's conservative attitude and the fact that um, Italy were already topping the group perhaps explains why that one got to half-time goalless. But then it was after the break when a uh, another set piece, just like the Chile goal, came from a free kick. This was a free kick in a similar position on the byline. And Christian Vieri stole a march on his marker, just managed to head that in at the front post. It was, it was quite a nicely worked goal in a, in a very tense game. But tellingly, you know, Austria hadn't found themselves more than one goal down in any of the games at that point in the tournament. But coming into the, the last few minutes of the game, one down against that Italy side, they really needed to get a result in that game. It was so, so tight in the group. You know, none of the other sides had got a win yet. So the group was still wide open. There was everything to play for. You know, it's not like Austria were out of the tournament early on. And even going down the home stretch, there was still so much to play for. But at some point, Austria fell two goals behind like they hadn't done in any of their games at that point. And I'll share with you what the second goal sounded like. Nicely worked. Baggio back to Inzaghi. 2-0! It's Italy's victory now. And the two substitutes combined for the second goal. A tap-in for Robbie Baggio. 
I mean, what can you say about that? You've got Baggio and Inzaghi combining from the <laughs> substitutes bench. You know, how, how critical can you be of Austria at that point? I don't think that goal actually happened because in club football during the 90s, I never saw Inzaghi cross, uh, cross or pass the ball when he got that close to goal. <laughs> yeah, the so world's most selfish I footballer. <laughs> I don't think that happened. I think that's uh, it's YouTube playing, uh, playing tricks on our minds. Unfortunately, from the Austrian perspective, it did happen and it rendered what was to come next, unfortunately, a formality because just as in their previous two games, Austria did manage to get a goal in injury time and that sounded something like this. So yet again, Austria score in time added on. It's been the story of their World Cup, but it's not been good enough. Andy Herzog's penalty, crisply hit past Paliuka. A parting shot from Austria. Sounds a little bit like Alan Partridge commentary when you play it back <laughs> at this point, but that is what 90s football was like in England. And uh, yeah, Herzog with a late penalty. But that's all it was. You could hear from the intensity of the commentary that it didn't mean anything at that point. Once Austria had gone two behind, the injury time penalty was academic. How different it could have been with just one goal here or there for or against Austria. They were so close to going through. They were, but I think you also have to, to look at it in, in the context of the time and, and the context of the draw. Obviously, we talked about the quality of the opposition, but there probably weren't too many tougher groups at that World Cup. And then just from an Austrian perspective as well, you know, there have been five World Cups since that one, and they haven't got to any of them. So just the fact that they were there in the first place was a real was a real achievement coming top of that group so comfortably. So obviously they did ultimately go out, but I think um, I think they did themselves proud. And I think you also have to admit, given the teams that Italy and Chile got paired with, they probably wouldn't have gone much further anyway, would they? That's right. So Chile went on into the knockouts and they were beaten 4-1 by eventual finalists Brazil, if I remember rightly, in, in what was a classic high-scoring game. You know, the tournament really opened up, didn't it, once it got to the knockouts. And uh, what about the group winners with seven points, Italy? I know they were also defeated by uh, an eventual finalist. Yeah, they lost in the quarterfinals eventually to France uh, on penalties uh, in a game that broke the heart of a, of a young Simon Clark. I, I remember crying, crying in my house that Italy were knocked out of the World Cup quarterfinals. But I, I didn't cry when England got that knocked out. So <laughs> a seven-year-old mind eh, works in weird ways. It was different at those times. But what an Italy side that was. You know, of course, there's, there's what-ifs and, and there's buts in all international tournaments. But if that Italy side had got past France or edged out France in that game, they surely were up there as favourites to win the tournament. They must have been. Yeah, they would have faced Croatia in the semis and then a Brazil, which had a Ronaldo who probably shouldn't have played <laughs> as well. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a what if, isn't it? I mean, it's just football. It's the nature of penalty shootouts, I guess. But what about it for Austria? Had they come second in the group, you know, just if, if they'd have switched places with Chile, that's a kind of believable scenario. Imagine that. Tony Polster leading the line against Brazil in the World Cup knockouts. We could have seen that. Yeah, I think that really they would have needed to have beaten Italy and hoped that Chile didn't get a good result because... I think the only way they'd have potentially got to the quarterfinals is if they'd been against uh, up against Italy's last 16 opponents, which were Norway. 
I think that's maybe, I mean, that was a very good Norway team as well with some, some famous yeah. faces in there. But I think it was probably Austria's best chance if they were going to have an outside chance of getting to the, to the quarterfinals. That's right. I remember the Norway group very well because they were in the group with Scotland, who, who were very dear to me at the time and still are, of course. But it was Norway, Scotland in their previous World Cup, in their last World Cup to date, as, uh, as is the case with Austria. And uh, yeah, Norway, Scotland, Brazil and Morocco made up a fabulous group to be drawn against the Austria group. And of um, course, so Norway won against Brazil as well, 2-1. Yeah, exactly. Norway yeah. topped the group. Yeah. Norway topped the group. Imagine that now. It could happen with Berling Haaland and Martin Odegaard. It's a, a new generation of great Norwegian players. That still happens, though. Like, I believe this was the first World Cup tournament with the expanded 32-team format. Is that right? It was, yeah, it was I think the first yeah, it was, yeah. full group of four. Yeah. And I, I feel like that happens every time. If you rank the teams in, in sort of ranking order before the tournament, it rarely ends up like that. And, and often, that's what's exciting about these groups. You know, one result goes your way here or there, and a lesser team can, can grab top spot and, uh, and leave the groups in a kind of an unexpected way. That wasn't to be for Austria that time, but they certainly made their mark on France 98. No doubt about that. It's a very, very memorable side. The, uh, the images, the sounds, the, the shirts, the, the players, the late goals... There's a lot to remember and there's a lot to celebrate from Austria at France 98. I know it's a big deal for Austria, of course, going on the fact that that's the last World Cup they've ever been at. You know, these players are still around and, and they still mean a lot to a lot of people in Austria. But before we discuss what the players are kind of up to now, what, where the squad have ended up, what were some of the other moments of that World Cup for you guys? What stands out? Just, just setting the scene of France 98. Because... I think we've said it a couple of times now, that was a peak tournament for people, certainly of our age. Yeah, there's just so many memorable moments. I mean, the one for me I remember is coming home from school and watching Paul Scholes score against Tunisia on the, the beautiful sunny day. And just, yeah. uh, I just remember, I, yeah, just really, it's maybe one of my first really clear football, football memories. I remember Alan Shearer scoring against Holland in Euro 96, but it's, it's not clear. But I, that is so clear to me, the Paul Scholes against Tunisia. Yeah. There's too many to choose from. There's the, the Bergkamp goal against Argentina where he oh, puts it through Ayala's legs. Yeah, smashes that into the top corner. You've got that Croatia team, which uh, only a few years after independence had gone all the way to the, the semi-finals with Davos Suker leading the line. I mean, France as well with their, their first, uh, the first golden goal in World Cup history. Yeah. We were spoiled that summer. Yeah, I'll never forget Emmanuel Petit scoring the goal in the World Cup final. But sort of, I remember thinking at that time, you know, are they really going to do this against Brazil? And uh, I know, of course, Zidane was, was a key player then. And he got the first, but with Petit scoring that goal, that, that's really what made me think, they are going to do this, aren't they? You know, it's, you're, uh, you're talking to your parents and saying like, wow, is this, is this truly going to happen, this kind of upset? Are France really going to win the World Cup in their own country? And that was, yeah, these are sort of, football coming-of-age moments for us. and uh, England, the Argentina was massive as well. I fell in love with, with South Africa, amazing South Africa jerseys. For that yeah, tournament. so good. They had a horror game against South Africa, against France. Sorry, I remember some own goals and stuff and, and some really bad goals. I think they lost 4-0 in the group stages to South Africa, but I love them. I love Japan. I, my love of Japan, which is kind of all-consuming now, I, I feel like 
their shirts with the, the flames on the sleeve had a lot to do with that back in their first World Cup in 1998 as well. And they, they had a cool group with Jamaica, you know, the reggae boys as well. They brought so much to the tournament. So there's a lot of sort of niche things that I fell in love with in terms of uh, nations that I still have a, have a big soft spot for today. Uh, Paraguay with Shula there as well being one of those. <laughs> it's the time you mentioned the England-Argentina game. I actually watched the, that full game a few months ago and it's genuinely one of the greatest World Cup matches of all time. It's just so pulsating. It's atmosphere is incredible you have players at the peak of their powers it's just oh it's a beautiful game of football apart from the penalty shootout of course <laughs> but you have like so Mike Lowen's goal <laughs> Mike Lowen's goal we Beckham away from off. the painful memory of, of England <laughs> being beaten in that absolute classic end-to-end encounter against Argentina uh, let's take things back to Austria what a classic squad that was now if you think about what they went on to achieve that that band of, of Austria players and if you look back through some of those names, what about, what about some of their involvement? I know there were some players at the time who were involved in all sorts. You know, I, I, you mentioned that, that um, there was a, a Champions League winner with, with Dortmund. You had Heden, who was playing for Leeds at the time in England. You know, that was a big deal in the 90s as well. What, what, were some of those players, what, what have some of those players gone on to do since World Cup 98? Well, a lot of them have gone into football management, that's for sure. Uh, you, you have Andy Herzog, who's the current manager of Israel. You have uh, Didi Kuba, who, who's, of course, the manager of Rapid Vienna. You have Roman Mimelich, who was the Sturm manager, and now he's the Austria Lustenau manager, preparing for the OFB Cup final. You have Marcus Schuch. on TV so much as well. Mimelich yeah. is uh, well known. I know Lee has some thoughts on his, uh, on his choice of suits, because Mimelich <laughs> often wears like, a, red, a red suit on TV. Oh, it's just horrendous. I know some people probably like it, but that red suit, no, nah, I think he needs to change now. He's a big personality, of course. He's one of one of many big personalities in Austria. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, you've got Steve Zubauer managing uh, Wolfsburg and then Rapid Vienna. There's tons. Any, anyone else comes to mind? Yeah, there's Marcus Schupp, who's the manager of Hartberg. And uh, um, finally, there's Peter Sturger, who was the former uh, Borussia Dortmund manager. Now he's the Austria-Vienna director of football. Actually, not finally, because uh, Tony Polster is the manager of Vienna Victoria, of course. That's <laughs> right. In the uh, third division of Austria, Austrian football. In that squad, of course, you've got Tony Polster, the record goal scorer for Austria, and Andreas Herzog. Uh, Herzog, not only is he the Israel manager now, but he was also the record... Uh, he is also the record Austria cap holder. So... Um, it's not just reminiscing about France 98. That truly was a classic Austria squad in all, you know, in, in every way. And I think Austrians share that with us. We think of it as a classic squad from our perspective growing up in, uh, in England. But I think Austrians believe that that was a classic Austria squad as well. Yeah, there are also a few, uh, a few names from that squad that have gone into non-football related activities. Um, Walter Kogler is currently working in the insurance industry. And uh, my favourite one here is uh, the aforementioned Wolfgang Feierzinger, um, who is the father of uh, Laura Feierzinger, who's currently uh, an Austria women's international. But until recently, he was running a mountain chalet in the Kitzbühel Alps. So uh, def- definitely taken a That's path so away from football there. Yeah. <laughs> That's such an Austrian thing to do. Yeah. We've got to check that out. Surely we've got to check that out. Yeah. He's, no longer, he's no longer running it, so oh. I don't think we'll be able to. That would have been fun. Terrible. 
Terrible. Oh, and also one last one. Andreas Herath uh, moved to New Zealand and became the technical director of the Football Association and the head coach of the women's team as well. So people went all over the place after that one. That's right. I think he's still involved in football in New Zealand, isn't he, Herath? So a lot of people getting involved in a lot of ways. I think I'd, I'd like to close this, uh, this episode off with a memory of something that happened just after France 98, because these things were really important at the time. You know, we were just kids. And I remember thinking at that time, it was the era where if somebody beat somebody else, they were better than them. And if somebody drew with somebody else, they were equal or whatever. That's sort of the way you used to think in the playground. And I remember the news coming around. Uh, it was August 98, so just after the World Cup. And France, in their first game after lifting the trophy on home soil, had a friendly in Vienna at the Stadion against Austria. How good is that? Can you imagine the freshly crowned world champions coming to Austria for a friendly and, and the Austria squad who had a, a good, you know, heroic World Cup but ended early in the group stage having the chance to meet up against the team who just lifted the World Cup. And, and that was an absolute thriller. And uh, I remember France had to scrape to a 2-2 draw in the end in that game. And it was, it's just brilliant to watch that back. You know, you get this grainy sort of 90s TV footage and you've got that team with like players like Pires who are emerging and you've got Zidane in there. You've got all these classic players. Henri obviously is a big part of that. And uh, yeah, I just, I think it's a very nice, uh, nice little sort of final bracket that Austria ended up bringing this thing full circle and getting a 2-2 draw in a game at the Eztapel against that very France side. I think that that's pretty cool. I've got the scores written down here somewhere if I can find them because that was a great game. You had Mario Haas scoring to equalise at 1-1 in August 1998 and uh, a foul by one uh, Frank Leboeuf of France, oh. obviously well-known to English football fans. A foul by Frank Leboeuf allowed Evita Vastic to give Austria the lead again and they were pegged back. There, were, uh, there was a late goal from Alain Bogossian for France. Sensational. Perhaps well, the most classic names. Oh, that is Sorry, a classic name. Is it? Yeah, I mean, you had Turam, Turam Zidane, Henri Deschamps, Djokaev, Pires and co. And the goal scorers were Lilian Lalonde and, um, <laughs> and uh, Alain Bagossian. Perhaps, you know, not, not the two most classic French names. But I love the fact that France came to Austria to close off France 98 just after lifting the trophy. Shall I... Shall I play us an outro and finish off a wonderful episode, a wonderful look back on France 98? Because I thoroughly enjoyed this. Yeah, please do, Tom. <laughs> it's been lovely. It's been lovely bringing back the memories. What a what a summer of football it was. It truly was. Was that the best tournament? Is that your favourite tournament in life? Yeah, for me, it's a toss-up between France 98 and Euro 2004. I think those two tournaments were just sensational tournaments all all the way through but I think France 98 might edge it just because it was my first tournament that I remember and just I look back on it fondly I really do Absolutely. yeah I agree I agree with Sai yeah for sure it's been lovely to reminisce about France 98 with you both if you've enjoyed this episode we've got more coming we're doing this one of course in isolation still hence the uh, poor video quality and hopefully not so poor audio quality We'll be back in the studio. We'll be back recording properly as soon as we can. But before then, we're going to look at some other classic tournaments, some other classic runs through European Cups and some legendary seasons for the Austrian club sides as well as the Austrian national side. I'm really excited about some of those things. So keep an eye out. You can support us on Patreon. We would really appreciate your support if you're willing to part with a few euros or a few dollars or a few pounds 
to help us out every month and get more of our exclusive content on Patreon. If not, stick with us on Twitter at Other Bundesliga, on Facebook at Other Bundesliga, and uh, on Instagram as well, of course, for the image and video side of things, if I can remember all of our social media channels. But for now, we'll bow out for France 98 with a bit of this. Carnival de Paris.